Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. God bless you. Welcome, Brother Davenport. Enjoy your evening tonight. This is the second of two talks talking about St. Albert the Great and the subtitle, Reclaiming Science for God. And I, I started with this last time, I'm just going to quickly go through it again, just because it was a bit of an inspiration for me when I was first thinking about this talk. Uh, I came across this, uh, this talk given by one of our friars in October 22nd, uh, 1960, on St. Albert the Great and modern science. I've been looking at that for a week, and I still can't figure out what the picture is. Um, but uh, in this, this, again, this talk, uh, you know, 55 years ago, talking about the way that St. Albert um, could help to understand and, and approach some of the problems we see related to science and society, faith in science. Um, and so once again, I just wanted to uh, dedicate this talk to um, the many Dominicans who have, who have studied, particularly you know, St. Albert, St. Thomas, and the relationship of faith and science. These are four in particular, several of whom passed away just recently. So I just, um, I guess, want to dedicate the talk to them and, and commend them to your prayers. So uh, I thank you for that. So um, last week, the, for the first part of it uh, was a sort of a historical perspective about who St. Albert was in his own day. Um, why it was that he was so great that even in his own day he was known as Albert the Great. Why it was that he became a saint. Why it is that he's the patron saint of scientists. And so just um, in, in the, the core of what I, was, what I tried to lay out there was that he, he lived at a point of kind of crossroads in the church on an intellectual level. There had been a long tradition of a particular way of thinking about philosophy and, and nature, and there was a, a new introduction or reintroduction of philosophy that, that was um, coming from the ancient Greeks that was now unfamiliar, coming through Aristotle. And so St. Albert the Great was able to kind of bridge the gap between what the church was familiar with and this new perspective and see a way in which they really could come together to uh, have a full... Uh, honest perspective on how to think about nature within the church. Um, he saw the value of nature as pointing towards God, um, but not just as a stepping stone, also having a certain dignity in and of itself that was worth studying in detail. Um, he recognized the usefulness of, of mathematics and certain tools to approach nature, but, saw, but again thought that it wasn't only through mathematics that we saw nature. There was something about the physical object itself the natural thing itself created by God that was worth, that was worth giving our attention to. And so he took this, the, the, the sort of traditional uh, uh, philosophy coming through Augustine and the Aristotelian philosophy that was, that was new and sort of unfamiliar and was able to sort of put it in a, in a proper Christian context. Um, and as, as a quote I laid, uh, read la at the end of last time said, he laid the foundation for their, the possibility of there being a status for science within Christianity. So at the very, at the sort of beginning of this, this project. So we fast forward and, and we see around the, you know, the time of the Renaissance, we see the beginning of what we would call the scientific revolution with Galileo, 
and Newton um, and, and many uh, uh, famous figures. Even at that point, St. Albert was still somewhat of an authority. You know, and Galileo himself quotes St. Albert at certain points, um, referencing his, his writings on nature. But very, very soon there's a, a drift away from the kind of traditional, uh, at that point traditional, now it was new when St. Albert was around, but at that point, several hundred years later, it had become kind of an established way of thinking about nature. And, and particularly from a modern perspective, many people look back and think that science was only able to succeed when it was able to kind of throw off the perspective that St. Albert brought. It was only when we got rid of the particular Aristotelian way of thinking about nature and many of the, um, the tools that he used, it was only by getting rid of those that science was able to actually make progress and move forward. And I, I, want, I want to claim that that's, um, while, while there are ways in which science has sort of uh, in certain ways kind of taken a different path, it's not antithetical to what St. Albert the Great had to say. And in fact, there are things that he has to say that can help many of the problems we see, both problems within science itself that scientists themselves argue over and have a hard time figuring out, problems between science and philosophy, sort of science and the broader understanding of the world as a whole, and between science and faith. And I think Albert has things to say in each of those areas um, that, again, don't require giving up the great gains that modern science has been, but putting it in a, in a proper context, much like he did in his own day. Much of this revolves a little bit around uh, the relationship of philosophy and science. So I want to start with a bit of a story, which is a story about my own education uh, as an undergraduate physics major. Um, I studied at Caltech, which, if you don't know, um, is a very nerdy place. Uh, everyone there is studying for some sort of science degree, or maybe, there's a few mathematicians too, but I, I, took, I took a philosophy class while I was there. It was the only philosophy class I took, and I, I, it left me with a very, very bad taste in my mouth, because we're in this philosophy class, sitting around the room, I'm studying physics, people studying chemistry, studying biology, engineering, and it felt like, I, I've told this story many times, so I can't tell if this is actually the actual memory or just the character I build up, but it felt like we were sitting around the room, and at some point, we just start talking about, well, what if we're all just brains in boxes? What if, what if we're just living in the matrix and the world outside of us isn't even real? Like, how, how do we really know that? And my reaction is, that's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> None of us believe that. I mean, you know, like the, 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 you know, the professor was talking about some crazy experience he had and, and, and this and that, but it's like none of us, I mean, we're, we're studying nature, we're studying reality. All of us believe that there is something out there we can get our hands on and, and, and get our minds around. The whole notion of this philosophy is a waste of time. And I had a really just bad taste for philosophy in my mouth after that. And so I have a certain affinity when I hear scientists today badmouth philosophy, which is not uncommon. So for instance, Stephen Hawking, who is a great physicist, does uh, wonderful work in cosmology, has a quote from his sort of most recent popular book. It's like page one, you know, second paragraph. He's just talking about the big questions, the meaning, the beginning of the world, things like that. And he says, traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. <laughs> philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. And so now having studied two years of philosophy and four years of theology at the Dominican House of Studies, or three years, three years of theology, the Dominican House of Studies, I realize he's wrong. One, philosophy is not dead. There's a great vibrancy and life to it. But 
I understand where he's coming from. Because if, if you think of philosophy as sitting around and wondering whether we're brains in boxes, or, you know, or, or whatever sort of absurd, silly caricature you can make of it, it is a waste of time. Another, um, another just, you know, to, to pick, on, pick on other people. So Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is a, a sort of a very popularizer, you know, a great popular speaker in, in sciences, I was in an interview, had this to say about philosophy. My concern here is that the philosophers believe they are actually asking deep questions about nature. And to the scientists, it's, what are you doing? Why are you concerning yourself with the meaning of meaning? The scientist says, look, I got a world of unknown out there. I'm moving on. I'm leaving you behind. You can't even cross the street because you're so distracted by what you think are such deep questions you've asked yourselves. I don't have any time for that. And it's funny because, again, I have this affinity for that reaction because I know where he's coming from, of this sort of philosophy, particularly when you hear philosophers tell scientists that, that what science really is is a social construction in which what you're doing is you're not really studying reality. What you're studying is sort of our collected opinions about things. No, no scientist is going to take that seriously. And so you can understand why there's this rift in the modern day uh, between philosophy and science. But the problem is, whether they know it or not, these scientists have a philosophy, do philosophy, even if they don't want to say that or realize that. Like I said, Hawking, page one of his book, says philosophy is dead, and then writes another 200 and some pages on philosophy without realizing that's what he's doing. Or, I mean, he pretty well may realize what he's doing, but saying that I'm drawing this under the mantle of science and legitimizing it in that sense. And the problem is that with, particularly when these are un, unconsidered and, not, and, and not, uh, not thought through, they can be even stronger and sense more dangerous because they haven't been considered as to what is, what is the overall picture of the world that I'm approaching? How, how is it that I, that I process all the information that comes in? And so I think one of the great things that St. Albert has to offer to us is to restore a healthy balance between philosophy and science. Because for him, in a real sense, they weren't different. He doesn't actually have a, a separate word for the study of nature as, as science as we understand it. He's considered that natural philosophy. It was a particular aspect of philosophy, um, but there was a much stronger nuance in the way that he approached it. And so what I hope to do today is sort of touch on four different aspects in which I think this proper understanding of philosophy uh, and the relationship of philosophy and science and the way we think about nature, the way we approach nature, can help resolve issues both within science and between science and faith. So, the, um, so th there's four topics I want to touch on. The first is the question of sort of what exactly are we talking about when we talk about nature, or when we, what, what exactly are we studying when we're doing science? The second is what exactly can we say about that thing that we're studying? Like what sorts of things are we able to talk about with it? The third is what is the relationship of that study, that science, to a broader view of knowledge as a whole? Is it everything? Is it, is it nothing? Is it un how, how is that related? And then ultimately, how is that, that, that picture of how we think about nature related to God? So first, what exactly are you, we doing when we are studying nature, when we are doing science, as you sort of just, you would, you would think of what science is? I mean, the true goal of any intellectual pursuit is the truth. And properly understood, the truth is the correspondence of our ideas, to reality. I mean, this is what I revolted against in the philosophy class. 
I mean, we are talking about this imaginary world that just doesn't exist. I just, I, I have a certain confidence that I'm not a brain in a box because that's just be a waste of, I mean, just, the idea is imaginary and absurd. And so it's sort of like, I'm not, it's not connected with my experience of, 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 of the world as a whole. And so it was revolting against this sort of non-reality of what we were thinking about. And so you would think that would be just a base level assumption uh, about science, that there is a reality out there and that's what we're talking about. But it gets difficult. Scientists have a hard, especially today, have a hard time dealing with this. And I think part of it has to do with the great advances of the last century in modern science. I mean, if you think about um, at least what you've heard of quantum mechanics and special relativity and general relativity, when you start talking about, uh, you know, when you start talking about um, uh, wave particle duality, when you start talking about curved space time, when you start talking about uh, gravitational lensing in the universe, you start talking about the Big Bang. These are things that we're not familiar with. These are things that are very odd to us. And it takes a lot of thinking, a lot of time, and a lot of math to get our head around, even for a physicist, to get your head around what the heck you're talking about when you're dealing with these sciences. And you get so enamored with it, it's so beautiful to see these weird, seemingly weird ideas actually sort of correspond to, you know, have experimental results that you see come about. It's so beautiful that you almost, you start to prioritize that over what you're used to. You're so used to the, the extraordinary that the ordinary you start to question. And, and you can see this in, in quotes by sort of scientists and popular science writers. I mean, one in particular just uh, is talking about, it's actually talking, talking about trying to fit sort of explain God using science. And it's, it's not worth getting into the details here, but there's this one quote that just jumped out at me. If it isn't real, there's nothing to talk about. Okay, I'm bored on there. I'm on board there. But I don't mean real like a table or a feeling or a test score or a star. Those are real in normal earthbound experience. I mean real in the fully scientific picture of our double dark universe, our planets, our biology, and our moment in history. It's this odd dichotomy between the, the real of the table, the thing I can actually get my hands on and, and touch, and the really real of, of science. that's somehow different and better than the real that I can get my hands on. As uh, one of the friars the House of Studies like to say, it's, it's a denial of the existence or the priority of medium-sized dry goods. <laughs> the sort of things you deal with every single day. But if you think about it, the only reason we can say anything about the more extraordinary, the, the galactic scale, the tiny scale, is because we've gone through medium-sized dry goods. We've gone through like layers of experimentation that deal with what, the first things we can get our hands on. And it's only through that that we can really get to the more extraordinary. And so if we're using the more extraordinary to undercut the things that got us there, where does that leave us? We're in a bit of a bind. Another, another way of phrasing this is this idea that um, Hawking again brings up of model-dependent realism. Um, and what he means by that is that according to model-dependent realism, it is pointless to ask whether a model is real, only whether it agrees with observation. If there are two models, that both agree with observation, then one cannot say that one is more real than another. There is some truth to what he's saying, observation as, as the guiding principle of, you know, if something, if we observe something that, 
that contradicts our theory, our theory has to be wrong. There's got to be a problem there. But this idea that suddenly that means a, a separation from reality, I think he goes too far. He takes a proper insight, but expands it beyond the proper, the, the proper bounds to apply it to our, our ability to say anything about reality. I think the study of physical nature, particularly as, uh, as understood um, by St. Albert and, 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 and coming out of that tradition, is that um, what we are describing is the reality of, of physical beings, corporeal, mobile beings. We're talking about really existing physical things and able to say something about them, something about those things, not just about something in our mind, not just a model we think of, not something external, but the actual things themselves. There's a priority of this, this sense observation, which again is common to, to, to scientists, but it, it's for the confirmation of the principles we want to use about these, these, these real natures, the natures of, of, the, of the things. So we want, to talk about, we want to talk about the nature of a dog or the nature of a cat and say something about that in and of itself. And this is not antithetical to the way we do things in science, uh, as I'll talk about a bit later, but it's a different kind of twist on it in a certain sense. And, 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 and sort of giving it a bit more, it's, it's, it's taking it a bit more seriously than some scientists are willing to, set, to, willing to go. But that said, I mean, the things that are, even the things that are familiar to us get complicated. Dogs and cats are complicated. Trees and flowers and everything get complicated. Even, even rocks are complicated. Um, it's hard to just, you know, you can't just look at a rock and know everything about a rock. So how do, we, how do we begin this process of understanding them? And this is um, the way, sort of, the way St. Albert and this tradition of, uh, of natural philosophy was to draw on the basic, you know, kind of, the basic question that any, you know, the, the first and most annoying question that a small child ever learns, which is why? Why is it this way? Why is it that way? And you start answering why. What you're looking for are answers to the question why, which is what uh, what St. Albert, or what Aristotle first and then St. Albert would talk about as causes. The causes for something to be there. They, they would talk about four different types of causes. Um, so uh, the, the typical example is if you have uh, a bronze statue. That's the standard thing they would go to. So you can talk about why is there this, this bronze statue of Apollo standing here. Well, okay. Um, part of the reason it's there is because there is, there's bronze there to begin with. If there weren't bronze, there wouldn't be a statue. So there is the matter, the stuff it's made of, is sitting there and I can, uh, so that's a, 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 an important aspect of the, the very possibility of it existing. Uh, so it's part of a cause, a material cause. There's the fact that it's a statue of Apollo, the particular shape. If it were a different shape, it wouldn't be this statue. It wouldn't be this particular statue of Apollo if it had a different form. Um, and, that, and then, you can talk about, well, okay, there's the sculptor. Somebody made this statue. If there weren't the actor, the efficient cause, the one who brought it about, then there wouldn't be the statue either. Then finally, there's, well, why is, it a statue? Well, why is there this particular statue at this time? It's, well, because the sculptor's got to eat, right? So he, you know, he, wants to, he wants to sell this gap to sculpture, or maybe he just he wants to honor Apollo. There's some, there's some reason that the sculptor decided to make this particular statue the way he did. And that would be called the final cause, looking at the goal or the end uh, involved in the, the construction of the statue. Um, but this, so in a certain sense, it's really, it's easy to think about those things when we're talking about things we make as human beings because we're in charge of the whole process. We go get the stuff, we put it in the shape we want it, we're the one making it, the efficient cause, and we know why we're doing it. 
It's harder to do that when we talk about natural things because we didn't make it. We're not the one in charge. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a healthy way and in a, in a, a proper way to think about nature on these terms. I think um, a particular example I like to, to, to think through is the question, you know, kind of again, one of those simple questions that, 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 even, you know, that, that every child asks, even to the point of annoyance sometimes. Why is the sky blue? Well, why is the sky blue? Well, step one, the sun's out. Right, okay, obviously. At night, the, sun's, the sky's not blue. The sky's black. So the fact that there is uh, a source, a, a, a efficient cause of the sun shedding light on the sky, um, there is uh, a process of the fact that, but that, that explains sort of, okay, if the sun's not there, it wouldn't happen. But why is, it, why is the, the sky shining in the way that it does? Why is there, why is it like light up so much? Why isn't there just like a little circle for the sun uh, where, where the sun is and everything else black? Well, that's because the sky sort of, it, it absorbs the light and reflects it back out. And so as long as the sun is there uh, exciting, as we say, this, uh, the air, the air is shedding down light particles back on us. So it's sort of reflecting back from different directions. And there's a way in which that's what we would call kind of a final cause because the light wants to be, in a certain sense, the sky wants to be dark. It wants to be just rested and not shedding, shedding light. So there's a, a, when it's exciting, it's constantly shedding out the things that it's absorbing. There's a way we can talk about the formal cause, the fact that it's, it's this, this particular structure of lots and lots of little particles. And the fact that they're so dis, dispute, dispersed allows for the fact that, that light can penetrate so deeply and come at us from all sorts of different directions. It bounces off different particles, different places, and comes at us from all sorts of different directions instead of just from where the sun is. And then there's the material cause. The fact that these little pieces are so small is what makes it blue because they're so much smaller than the wavelength of light that of all the, aspect, all of the parts of light sh speeding, through, speeding through the sky, the blue part of the spectrum is what, come, is what gets absorbed more frequently and what bounces off. So there's, there's a quick run through of a broad sense of how you could apply it, but I, I, the, the point I wanna get across is these are not, these sort of sense of causes not antithetical to the way we talk about things in modern science. You can use the tools that we think about and the processes that we, that we deal with in terms of atoms and spectroscopy and all sorts of fancy things you deal with in science, and you can think about them in the language of causes. It's just not something that, sci that scientists tend to do. And they're even a bit afraid of it sometimes, particularly when you talk about uh, the final cause, which is, I think, a particularly important one, the goal involved. Because as soon as you start talking about a goal, suddenly think about whose goal? Who's involved in this? And the important aspect of this is that the, on a bare level, there are different layers in which you can talk about the goal and the final causality. The bare level of nature, what, what Aristotle is talking about in terms of a, a goal of nature is just this idea of stability and rest. The fact that the sky, when it's excited, wants to not be excited anymore. And so it sheds off that light. And eventually, when the sun stops shining on it, it stops, it stops uh, shedding out light. Um, the fact that a rock, when you put it on the side of a hill, is going to roll down to the bottom and find, find a rest point. Now, this is something we talk about in physics all the time. The, 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 the lowest energy state is a, is a way you could think of it. The fact that we, we seek for rest and stability. Um, and so, but the, the, the fear is that if you start talking about ends, then suddenly you're going to start talking about uh, intention, because that's how we think about goals. My goal is what I want to do. 
And there's a connection there, but I think there's an important sense to see that um, if, we t if we can talk about the goal, the end towards which a particular physical thing acts or, or, or exists, so whether it's a, uh, a puppy that is growing up to be a dog, and the dog that then makes more puppies, whether it's the acorn that grows up to be the tree, if you don't admit the fact that there are general processes, that, that dogs tend to make puppies, that puppies tend to grow up to be dogs, you can't even do science. If there's no tendency in order, if there's no end towards which things tend to move, science doesn't even work. And so, in a certain sense, final causality as Albert and as, uh, as, as Aristotle understood it, is, is a necessary, it's a, it's a prerequisite for the possibility of science. Now many people use that term in very different ways to say that if you talk about final cause then you have to be talking about a person or a being monkeying in there and getting, and getting, getting involved, which is a different sense. So that, that covers the, the notion of what, what it is we're talking about. We, the fact that we can talk about nature and we have these tools to approach this complicated picture of what nature is. But then the next sort of very important question is, what can we say about nature? And this is another place where, where scientists have a little bit of trouble. Um, the possibility of making true, concrete statements. Sometimes you find people who are very educated, very, very uh, well-versed in science, and, and say some of just silly-sounding things. Um, so I, I feel bad. I, I just, this, is, this is a writer in science and religion who does his best to talk about the way to bring together science and faith and talk about them in a healthy way. And, and many of the things he writes are very, very good. I don't agree with him on different aspects, but there's just this line in his book that jumped out at me. It's, just, it, it's incongruous. He says, science, so he's been talking about um, the, the fact that science changes at times and things like that. Science, we agree, is forever changing. But some scientific ideas are likely to stand the test of time indefinitely. It is not likely, for example, that the Copernican theory of the heavens, the idea that, that uh, the planets revolve around the sun, it is not likely that the Copernican uh, theory of the heavens will ever be overturned, or that the hypothesis of a flat earth will ever regain scientific currency. The idea that, that it's not likely that we'll ever think, of the, like, think that the Earth will be flat scientifically? That just seems absurd on the face of it. I mean, in, in, what, in what possible way could you conceive of a situation in which we would suddenly wake up and realize, oh, the Earth is flat. I forgot. That, I've been thinking about this the wrong way the whole time. Now, he, that, that's a bit more extreme in a certain sense, the way of phrasing it. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a little line in a big book, so it's not, I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that. But, even others will say something like, science can never tell us with certainty what's true, since there's always the possibility that some future discovery will rule it out. But science can often tell us with certainty what's not true. It, uh, it can rule out the impossible. And this is, I think, what many, many scientists fall back on. The notion of uh, falsifiability, that if you have a theory and you observe something that contradicts the theory, the theory's wrong. Great. All right, we can rule that one out, move on to the next theory. And there's, there's, it's a very healthy and robust way to think about, uh, to think about the sciences um, and, to, and, to, and to think about different aspects of the science. But um, 
But it's a limited way because it's still making that claim that all we can say is what's wrong. We can't necessarily say what's right. Um, and, and there's even now, there's even sort of strong debate amongst physicists, among string theorists and cosmologists talking about multiverse theories and things like that about whether the possibility of, uh, if, if a theory is in principle not falsifiable, if there's no way we could ever actually physically observe whether or not it was uh, 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 a part of it, uh, a claim that it made was true or not, is it, is it really science? Um, and, and so this is, this is a real crisis amongst uh, physicists today about what are, the, what are the conditions upon which we're willing to say something is true or not. And I think, um, I think Albert, this hemming and hawing among physicists, I think feeds into difficulties we have about truth in society as a whole. Um, you know, you look at, at, at uh, um, uh, St. John Paul II's uh, Fides et Ratio, where he, he spends so much time just trying, it's, it's, an, it's an encyclical from the Catholic Church that spends all the time trying to tell people that philosophy can actually tell the truth. Um, it, it spends all its time thinking about natural reason because it realizes that people don't trust the ability to say true things from natural reason anymore. Or Benedict XVI in his discussion of the dictatorship of relativism, this, this idea that if we don't, well, if we can't say anything true about human nature, then how can we say anything true about natural law or ethics or anything like that? And so this um, inability to sort of claim the truth for the sciences tr trickles down in other ways because if people look to the scientists as, as the ideal, and even there there's, there there's, there's questioning about it, it's, it's difficult. Now, there is, there is a healthy humility to what the scientists are trying to do because um, it turns out nature is really, really complicated. Uh, and there are, um, but the, the, the humility that they have is masked behind the desire they have for uh, a certain, t a particular type of certainty. They want everything to be logically, mathematically pure and true in a, in a, in a mathematical sense. I, I used a silly example last week. Um, one plus one equals two is really simple. It's straightforward, got it. One, one, two, awesome, we're great. Dog plus dog is really complicated. Um, when you get into to, to natural things, you lose a, a sense of the confidence that you had in the mathematics because the mathematics was nice and neat. There weren't any messy parts. Um, and so the thought is, if you can take the dogs and make them into numbers, uh, then, we'll be, then we'll be good. And so the fact that it's so hard to make dogs into numbers makes you have, uh, uh, you lose confidence in the ability to claim true things if you don't have that mathematical certainty. And what they're missing is the idea that there are other ways besides mathematics to be sure about something. And I think there's an important distinction here between uh, the idea of certainty the idea of knowing the truth and the completeness of that truth. It's very possible to say something sure and true about something that you don't know everything about. You can say something sure and true in a limited scale about a particular aspect of a thing without necessarily knowing every possible detail about it. And this is something just the, the, the idea that things are so complicated and, and the possibility that there might be a part we missed is well known to, uh, to St. Albert and those in his day. I mean, his, his student, St. Thomas, talks about uh, we can't even know the essence of a fly fully. We can't know everything there is to know about a fly. It's a good thing he said that because he had nothing, no idea about 
cell biology and molecular biology and all these different aspects. There is, there are, but, but that doesn't mean that he didn't know what a fly was or how, you know, that, that a fly wasn't, was a, uh, an animal, uh, well, it was an insect with so many legs and wings. He, he knew things about a fly, true things about flies, the relationship between flies. At least Albert probably didn't. I don't know if Thomas did. But, uh, but Albert, he knew things about the, na the, the nature he, he, he was dealing with and was able to say true things about them with the humility to realize he didn't know everything about them. Um, and a big part of this goes back to that idea of final causality that I talked about. The idea that uh, if you have uh, a natural thing moving towards its natural end, then on the supposition, assuming that it gets to that end, you can kind of lay out what the steps it had to go through to get there. So if you have an oak tree, you have absolute certainty that at some point there was an acorn. You know that. There was an acorn. If you have an acorn, you have no idea where there's going to be an oak tree. There are just a million squirrels out there just begging to get that acorn. And there's a good chance that one of them is going to get it. I mean, the number of acorns that come out of the trees that actually, I mean, so, but if you have, a, if you have an oak tree, you know you had an acorn. There is, there is certainty there, even though it's a limited certainty, even though you're dealing with a contingent thing. It's less about this mathematical certainty with which we can predict the future, and more about looking at the way, the proper ordering of nature to the, the ends towards which they normally move. So this, this healthier perspective of what we can talk about, which are natural things in and of themselves, and the way we can, and what we can say about them, that we can say real, true things about them, I think is central to rediscovering a certain confidence in science. It sounds funny to say that, that, that one of the big problems in science today is the lack of confidence in science, which seems exact opposite of what I think a lot of people experience. But there's, there, is a, there is a schizophrenia amongst many scientists about what it is they can and can't do and what it is they can and can't say. They, get, they can get very, very good at the, the mathematical uh, models that they're, they're building and, and, and talking about them, but they lose sight of the reality those models are really actually able to talk about. So that, I think, is something that St. Albert brings to the table to really help us understand science itself better. So next, moving on to the third point, speed up a little bit, well not speed up, this, this was a good bit shorter. Talking about the relationship of modern science to every other sort of knowledge you can think about. Because if you just think about it, there are lots of other kinds of knowledge than just the things you can put down in a physics textbook or in a physics paper. There, is, there are lots of different aspects of knowledge. And even if we just restrict ourselves to step away from kind of like facts of history, just talk about knowledge of the world as a whole and the ordering of the world, if we start to push and prod in, uh, on what we can say in science, we start to see that there are, there are limits there. Now, not all scientists want to admit that. There's a quote from, from Lawrence Krauss, who is, again, just a very eminent physicist, does a lot of great work. He talks about, we have discovered that all signs suggest a universe that could and plausibly did arise from a deeper nothing, involving the absence of space itself and which one day may return to nothing via processes that may not only be comprehensible, but also processes that do not require any external control or direction. You see this profound desire amongst many scientists, many, uh, particularly sort of on the materialistic side, to have a complete explanation in, in science itself, to not have to deal with this philosophy or this theology, to be able to fit everything into science itself. 
But there's a limitation to how far we can actually push that. And I think St. Albert's perspective that this, this viewing of nature, and particularly the sort of the particular tools that we've built up in modern science, which he would include in kind of his project of, of, of understanding nature and natural philosophy, is not the, the t sum total of our ability to say true things about the world. That in fact, the very goal of that study of nature itself is to point beyond itself, to sort of to point to the fact that there are, you know, by, by studying the physical and the corporeal, we come to understand that there are things that are not physical and not corporeal, and requires us to sort of expand our minds and think about broader view of reality. And that, that process eventually can and should lead us to God. So I just want to step back and look at that briefly. In science, we do things all the time where we, we talk about things we can't see. Um, it's just something we've gotten used to, particularly when you start talking about quantum mechanics. Um, we, have, we, we have very strong confidence. So even, even scientists would say, who may not want to say truth, you know, necessarily go all the way to true, truth or not, we have very, very strong confidence that electrons exist. I've never seen an electron. But you see the effects of electrons all the time, uh, well, not all the time, in many experiments. <laughs> in the right conditions, you can see the, the effects of electrons. In a certain sense, you're seeing them right now related to uh, that, that, the, the projection on that screen. But there are certain experiments we've done where we're able to uh, see the fact that there is this quantization of charge, that charge, electrical charge, the stuff that makes up electricity, comes in discrete packets, little, you know, there, there's, a, there's a certain size in which they, that under which it can't, it, can't, it can't go. And so we're able to say certain things about the discreteness of charge. And, we, and we, we, we play with those things, we can suddenly see, oh, well, also, there seems to be a mass associated with that charge a lot of times when you, when you separate it off from things. And we can say things about um, uh, the, the way it fits into components of matter. And suddenly saying all sorts of things about this thing we've never really fully seen, all we've seen are the effects of it, the way it affects the screen it bounces off of, or the way it affects the particular, uh, the, the particular like, blob of oil that's charged in a particular experiment. We see the effects of this thing we can't really see. Well, if we look in a broader sense at different aspects of reality, or even reality as a whole, we see effects of things that seem to not even fit into our picture of corporeality of being a body, a physical thing. And the two kind of obvious places to look, and it's, well, maybe, maybe obvious to me, maybe, uh, but the two f usual ways that people look at these, one is to think about the human mind. The fact that there are things that we think about that just simply can't be completely reduced to material firings of the brain. People will deny this, people claim that, they, that, that they'll figure it out sometime, but they're just, if you think seriously about it, um, all right, think about one tree. Think about two trees. Think about three trees. Think about 12,372 trees. Got it? 12, are you sure? Not, not, not 12,274, 374. 12,372 trees. We can think of an image of that in our head to a certain extent, but it's just a blob of trees. Um, it's the, the idea is not simply something that can be put into pictures or put into, a, it's, it's not something I can sort of copy out of my mind onto a piece of paper. It's not something material. Or the concept of, of peace, concept of love, these abstract ideas that we talk about that 
seem to go beyond the, the, something that can be labeled physically. The other possibility is to think about just everything. The fact that each individual thing we ever experience falls apart and corrupts, say, or that nothing, you know, that, that the fact that we usually see one process, fall, you know, like puppy only comes to be because there was a dog before it. The tree only comes to be because there's an acorn, which came from another tree before it, which came from an acorn before that. This, this process of, of causality, of one thing causing another, seems to, it, it, it just doesn't make sense that it would go on forever in that way. So we can talk about, the way Thomas Aquinas would talk about this is, is the first steps, the natural steps of sort of proofs for the existence of God. And Albert talks about these two, this idea that from natural experience of nature, we can come to a deeper knowledge to the non-physical, and ultimately by thinking about what, that non, what it means to be non-physical and the reality of that non-physical, to something even beyond, ultimately to the ultimate cause, which is God. The idea that natural philosophy, science, modern science, is not just in a, a nice, neat imagery way, a stepping stone to God, but really is intellectually a stepping stone to God. That if you take any aspect of nature, you study it long enough, and you put it in the right context, it will, it will get you to God. It's hard, it's difficult, and you don't always, it, it's, 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 it's hard to see in some ways, but it, it's there. I think that's a great gift that Albert gives us. The final gift that Albert gives us is to think about, okay, so we have God. What exactly does God have to do with all these natural things we've been dealing with this whole time? From materialists' point of view, many atheists, there is no room for God in our science. We have, we have our explanation. We've got this nice, neat, interweaving picture of laws. And we, we understand all these. We may not understand everything yet, but we're getting there. We're real close. And so there's just no room. Where are you going to put God in there? I don't, I, don't, I don't see the God equation. Now, they have this God particle. Don't even get me started on the God particle. But this idea that there's no room for God in... It's not God, the God particle. Just, okay, just in case you were wondering. There's no room for God in science for many people. And even some Christians... Kind of, kind of see this. They see the way that, that science seems to be explaining everything, and they get uncomfortable because they wonder where exactly is God anymore. I mean, sometimes you see this in the way that people um, can, can read the scriptures, and they, they think that when they have, this, they have a, a, a beautiful picture from the scriptures, the way God is working, and it seems to conflict with what you know, the physicist down the street says. So it's like, I'm not going to trust the, trust the physicist. I'm going to trust God. There's a long tradition in the church of what those scriptures mean and what those scriptures are really like what what the purpose of those scriptures are and what they're telling us and how to think about those in the context of the way that we think about the natural world even the natural world of the time of albert and the natural world of the early church fathers didn't fit into that picture of uh, of the, the 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 initial picture of genesis they had a different view of the cosmos and had to grapple with that and this is something the church has done and done successfully very well for many many years but even some people who want to talk about a concept called intelligent design, I think I get uncomfortable with that a little bit just because I'm not comfortable with the idea that we need to find a hole in science in order to prove that God is there. Because if we follow St. Albert and, the, and I think the, the great tradition of the church, the causes and the process we talk about in nature are not competing with God. If you have a natural explanation for something, that doesn't mean you don't need God, because the natural thing wouldn't even be there, wouldn't even be able to act in the way it does if God was not active 
and sustaining it in its natural order. The idea that God is the primary cause of all natural things, so that God is actively involved in everything that's going on. So when I raise my hand, I raise my hand. I raise my right hand because, I don't know, I decided to raise my right hand. But there's a way in which God is holding me in existence, giving me the natural powers and the free will to choose to raise my hand. All of that falls under his providential care. And so the more that we study about nature and learn the ways in which different natural things interact with each other, we're not detracting from the realm in which God can work. We're not finding places God isn't. We're finding places God is. We're finding the, the fact that God is creator not just of some moment, you know, whether, it, whether it's 7,000 or 14 billion years ago, it's not just God as creator in a moment that set things right and sets, sets backs and, and, and you know, lounges back and watches. It's God as the sustainer, the God who is holding us in existence right now because he loves us. That is, uh, I think, a fuller, proper idea of, what, um, of, of how the natural sciences relate to God. They're not competing with God. They're working with him. In fact, he is, he is the one who lays out this beautiful, amazing order, this tightly knit network of laws and, and, and natural processes we see are his design, his beautiful plan for us. And we are an integral part of that. So these four things, these, this, you know, I, my head, I actually was thinking them in terms of those aspects of causality. You have the material cause. What is the matter that we're talking about when we, study, uh, when we do science? The, the matter is nature itself. We're talking about real natural things. What is the form? What, are, what, what exactly are we able to say about these natural things? We're talk we can say true, certain things about them. It's hard. Not everything science says is certain. Not everything science can say will be certain, but there are certain things we have learned. We've learned the Earth is not flat. In fact, Aristotle knew that. We've known that for a long time. Uh, we've learned that, the, that, that the, the planets do revolve around the sun in a, in a real proper way. We've learned real things and are able to say real things about the world because, because of what we gained in science. There's, there is the final cause. What is, what is the purpose of this, 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 this effort of science? It is ultimately to find God. It is ultimately to lead us to the knowledge of God. Properly done, it can and should do that. And what is the efficient cause? God himself, he who is the creator, who made nature in the way that it is and holds it together in existence. So I want to end with just a, uh, a brief quote from St. Pius XII, speaking to the master of the order of preachers about St. Albert um, uh, after he had been appointed as the patron saint of scientists. It is especially for this reason, beloved son, that we decided to select and constitute him, St. Albert, patron of scientists, in order that students of the natural science, bearing in mind that he had been given to them as their guide, might follow in his footsteps and not cling too tightly to the investigation of the fragile things of this life, nor forget that their souls are meant for immortality, but use created things as rungs in a ladder that will elevate them to understand heavenly things and take supreme delight in them. May they discern the presence of God in all the forces of nature and in mediation and veneration 
admire the incorruptible rays of his splendor. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Brother Thomas. Um, underlying everything that I'm hearing from you, uh, you're saying many scientists want to have the final solution come from science itself, and, and yet you say that the uh, study of nature should lead us beyond nature, and maybe it's just a gift of God that that seems so obvious to me. And uh, you've had all of these courses in physics. You've heard plenty of physics professors, and I just wonder whether they're trying to indoctrinate everyone that's studying that don't go beyond nature. Um, I, I, I've, I've gotten versions of that question a lot about, you know, um, you know, did you ever have a crisis of faith in what you were studying? Or how, how did you deal with, um, how did you deal with you know, uh, sort of uh, professors or, or, or colleagues who, uh, who are, you know, kind of in trying to indoctrinate you. And maybe I'm just oblivious. Uh, I, I, I honestly can't, I can't point to an experience I had in the classroom where I felt a tension. Either that, you know, something in the textbook was, was making me question my faith or that um, something uh, that that you know uh, that a professor was coming after was saying something you know I I, I if I vaguely recall you know like a, a silly Galileo joke here or there maybe but I I can't think of um, in in physics and what I was studying I, I can't pinpoint that for myself um, and maybe maybe I just lucked out because I know I know there are I mean I, I knew I did have professors who were who were atheistic who, who were atheists or materialists and some who were very vocal about it uh, in different forums. But I guess in the classroom, for myself um, and in my research, you know, it, it didn't. I, I think physics has a particular way where you're so, you, you are so focused on the math, you're so focused on the way to think, like 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 the the structures you're dealing with, um, that these these the, the question of God is not. You don't expect to find him coming into your you know like even as a Christian, I don't expect to find God showing up in my math equation anywhere. I'm okay when he doesn't. Um, but I think sometimes in other scientists, particularly when you talk about biology, I think there's a lot of difficulty because I think a lot of scientists feel like people of faith, the church in particular, are trying to kind of get into their, their research directly. Whereas physicists, I mean, the church doesn't, I mean, you know, cosmology questions are interesting and, and, and particle physics is pretty awesome, but the church, there aren't, there aren't the same sort of moral quandaries um, that, that, that make things difficult, I guess. So uh, that's my personal take on that. I know that does exist out there. I've heard of it before. I know both colleagues and other, other, other disciplines and even other physicists, but um, I, maybe I was just lucky in that. I don't know. Um, brother, I'm going to give you an option. I'm, I'm the online representative, by the way. So uh, Paul from, actually, he lives here in Virginia. Paul, where are you tonight? Hey, Paul and Joan. Um, Paul's wondering, have any of St. Albert's observations been used to counter evolution? So that's your option number one. Your option number two is from Tom, and I don't know where Tom lives. He's saying, and this is interesting to me, does St. Hildegard of Bingen play any role in St. Albert's scientific thought? I know very, very little about question two, so I'm going to pass on that. So, so question number one. Um, no, I mean, this is, this is an interesting question. Um, uh, I, uh, 
I've been talking about St. Albert for two days, for, for, for over two talks now. And I, but I, I, I do not want to claim to be an expert in everything St. Albert writes, because he wrote a lot. Um, so I can't necessarily, I have not read even the full De Animalibus, his whole big treatise on animals. I, I do know he had, uh, so he did not, um, he did not believe in evolution as we believe it, because no one even conceived of that idea at the time. And so um, it, there's not uh, anything in his, you know, he's not arguing for anything like Darwinian evolution in the way he talks about natural things. He does have interesting things that uh, seem to rail against the common conception of what kind of um, Aristotle and, and kind of that tradition thought about nature. Um, there's this notion that Aristotle and, and then sort of, you know, Albert and St. Thomas News had this notion of fixed absolute uh, natures, like that, that a dog was a dog was a dog, that a cat was a cat was a cat, and that there were these, these, these fixed uh, brackets in which every animal and every plant could fit into. And it seems like, at least some of the things I've read, Albert has a certain nuance there, where he, he recognized the fact, I mean, even by that point, you had, you know, centuries of farming experience to see that you could sort of bring two plants together and make something that's somewhere in between the two of them, um, that there are ways of, of kind of melding the difference between what seems to be absolute fixed groups. Um, so it's not a claim that uh, he's saying anything about whether evolution is true or not, because it wasn't a question he would ever have considered. Um, so I, I, uh, there, are, there are certainly things he would say that would, would not mesh with the way we think about evolution today. But um, there are lots of things he says that turn out to be wrong. And that's, that's okay. Because the principles that I'm talking about here are not, uh, I think the details of, of Albert's work are fascinating because of the way they draw out the principles I've been talking about and show how, not just what he said about how science should be done, but how he put it into action in his own day as best he could. And I think um, those principles, I really do believe, have a, a way to fit in with and, and, and mesh with certain aspects of uh, the way we talk about evolution in modern science. Um, I know that there's, there's difficulty there about how does that fit particularly with uh, stories of biblical, biblical creation and things like that. And I think there is a healthy way to try to bring those two together. Um, that's a topic for a whole other talk. I think, but I think, I think there are things that St. Albert has to say that, that fit into that and have, have, a, have a, an important role in that. But um, I think it's an important question, but I don't, it's not one I can really get into right now. Uh, so I'm going to have to leave it at that. Thank you uh, once again, uh, Brother Thomas, for bringing this uh, yeah, lecture to us all tonight. And I have personally been into the, the topic uh, lately because I am a history student and I am also... Uh, been reading the works of uh, Thomas Woods Jr. and James Hannum, who have been, who have uh, written these wonderful books on uh, the subject. And where I see uh, theology conflicting with science the most, where there seems to be this this struggle, is with the uh, social sciences. So I wanted to know what you think that the relationship between like social sciences and theology is. I've studied. I've done some. I, mean, I took some social science classes myself. Although to be honest. Uh, the social science classes at, at, at Caltech were basically glorified math classes, usually something about, you know, so, you know, your political science is really just game theory. It's, anyways, but, um, I th but I think there is, um, if you, if, so I, I, I was focusing particularly on the role of science in, uh, in Albert's work in both of these talks. But I, as I, particularly as I talked about last week, he was 
much, much more than just uh, a scientist. He was, in fact, his job was a theologian. Uh, he was a great philosopher, and he, and he drew in sort of the breadth of the, the, the tradition that came down to him both through Augustine and Aristotle talking about, and, and part of that includes, you know, um, Augustine's views on, on the, the nature of the relationship of church and state, um, drawing in Aristotle's views on ethics and politics, on the nature of the state, and then bringing that into the particular sort of field and context in which he lived. And so um, I think there is a analogous way to talk about uh, um, a relationship between social sciences and, uh, and, and the broader order. So I mean, there's, uh, there is a proper kind of goal, a proper thing to study, and a proper topic to focus on in a particular social science. And sort of social sciences as a whole are generally about um, uh, humanity and, and sort of you know, the, the, uh, the human community uh, uh, for them. And I think there are ways to talk about that reality that are, uh, we can say true things about it. Now, the thing is, um, uh, as, as complicated and, and weird as, you know, uh, and difficult to talk about as, say, rocks and cats and trees are, people are just all the more complicated. And so there is, a, there is the truth that there is a even, even more kind of work to be done to get to that truth but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not something accessible that we can say real true things about uh, the relationship between human beings and, and the relationships, particularly as they are instantiated in a particular place, in a particular time. Um, and I think Albert has sort of things to talk about in that. And I think those tools could be uh, useful. That's a very broad statement. But I, I think there's an, an analogous way you could talk about the social sciences um, in their sort of proper realm, kind of fitting into this view of how we think about and talk about reality, uh, you know, with a, a proper ordering of itself, but still also kind of pointing beyond itself to something higher. Okay, as a physicist with a healthy skepticism of philosophy, especially at Caltech, I'd be interested, other than Albertus Magnus, what philosophers, whether ancient, modern, who do you think is, is who are the philosophers that are well worth looking at, whether a scientist or not? Sure. Um, so I, obviously, I did not stay completely skeptical of philosophy uh, my entire life. I, I, I had a couple good years there where I was, I was going to have nothing to do with it. But I was thankfully kind of reintroduced to um, philosophy in a very healthy way um, by some friends when I was in graduate school, um, good Catholic friends. And, um, and, and I guess. I, I mean, I even would say now. I mean, I'm far from an expert in philosophy. Um, uh, I've, you know, I've taken I've, I've taken two years of philosophy in my studies so far uh, for the priesthood. I, I hope to spend more time. I read a lot of philosophy. I hope to study, spend more time, particularly these questions of natural philosophy and philosophy of science. Um, the the philosophers I particularly look to for myself these days, who I think um, have a very healthy and robust way of talking about it. Uh, it would be first my, my patron, St. Thomas Aquinas, as sort of laying a bedrock for just a healthy perspective about reality, both ph philosophically and theologically. And I think um, the, the, the four men I pointed to here are um, four 
philosophers and theologians who, in particular, wrote a lot about the relationship of faith in science. I mean, some of it, is, some of it becomes very academic, uh, and, and, and so it's not necessarily all sort of public, or it's not all kind of directly accessible, but what they, their, their project was to take this, this, you know, this, this philosophy, this philosophical tradition through Albert, through Thomas, um, to, uh, and, and, and try to, see, they, they were convinced that it need not, it wasn't antithetical to modern science, and that there was a way to bring it into conversation. Um, and so, I mean, it, if there was a starting point, so Father William Wallace down in the bottom right there has a book called Modeling of Nature, um, which is his attempt. It's, it's, it's aimed at a more broad audience, but you know, it, it does get into some, some, some details of philosophy, Lay, laying out this picture of how can we talk about real scientific reality in these Aristotelian terms, in terms of the causes, the four causes, um, in terms of really saying true demonstrative things. And I, fi I find his project in particularly, I mean, so all of these men were, were, you know, friends at times and sometimes they butted heads uh, over things. But that, the, the particular emphasis he has on the fact that we can say true things in science, I find very, very inspiring. Because it's not, it's something that, that you don't hear from scientists and a lot of times you don't hear from Christians either. And it just seems to me we've learned something in the last, you know, several hundred years of doing modern, of, of doing, doing natural science. And so I want to be able to say that we can say true certain things about that. And so his project of trying to convince not just other scientists, but even other, other Catholics and other Thomists, uh, guys, who, people who follow St. Thomas Aquinas, that this is actually possible. I find that very inspiring. Um, I hope to, you know, continue to sort of learn more about his work and the work of broader uh, other philosophical traditions and, and see how those, those, those dialogue, and that's a project I'm just really getting started with, to be honest with you. So. Thank you very much, Father Thomas. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.